This week's episode is sponsored by Yellow Veil Pictures. Everyone needs to be heard. Following its launch at the Sundance Film Festival, Frida Kempf's suspenseful and claustrophobic Knocking can now be pre-ordered for digital and on-demand release on October 18th. Starring Cecilia Maloko as Molly, who is just discharged from a psychiatric ward for a nervous breakdown and settling down in her new apartment, ominous knocking begins keeping her up at night as she tries to unsuccessfully locate the repetitive banging. As the knocks grow more desperate and when no one believes her complaints, Molly slowly spirals into paranoid behavior. See what the Hollywood Reporter called gripping from first scene to last by heading over to knocking-film.com to watch the trailer and to find out more information about the release. I saw it myself and thought it was very good. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Severin. This December, give the gift of folk horror. Severin Films is proud to present all the Haunts Be Hours box set. 12 Blu-rays, 3 CDs, and a 126-page book. 20 feature films restored and remastered, including Eyes of Fire, Il Demonio, Allison's Birthday, Lake of the Dead, and the award-winning epic new documentary from Kayla Jeunesse, Woodlands Dark, and Days Bewitched. Includes hours of special features, short films, and Linda Hayden reading folk horror classic The White People Unexpurgated. All the Haunts Be Ours box set available at www.severn-films.com. Also coming this November, and I love this, Nasty Habits, the Nunsploitation Collection, featuring four sacrilegious classics on Blu-ray for the first time. Christina Devil Nun, Story of a Cloistered Nun, Images in a Convent, and the True Story of the Nun of Monza. Also available for the first time ever with original English language track, Barbara Steele in her final Italian Gothic and Angel for Satan special edition Blu-ray. Visit www.severin-films.com for these and more of the finest exploitation films on Blu-ray. Los Angelinos, be sure to join Severin at their pop-up film festival at the Cine Lounge Hollywood on Saturday, November 6th, where all the new Black Friday sales titles will be revealed. Calling all horror artists. We're excited to announce that Fangoria is partnering with Deviant Art for their fall horror challenge. Now is your chance to channel what a nightmare means to you in any art medium you like for the chance to win amazing prizes. Like a year-long contract with Fangoria, Huey on tablets and 4K pen displays, a spotlight on Fangoria magazine, and much more. Uh, we'll be selecting 15 total winners across three categories. We have Elevated Horror, which is your overall skill. We have Creep It Real, uh, Creative Execution. Hellraisers, which is the judge's choice. Uh, the winners will be selected by some amazing judges including Diana, Darcy the Mail Girl, Prince, as well as artists Attack Peter and 100% Soft. Uh, the deadline for entry is October 27th, 2021 at 11.59 p.m. Pacific Time. So get creating today. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Fangoria. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, and so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com now to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code COLORS in all caps, that is C-O-L-O-R-S, all caps, to save 25% off your yearly subscription. I just got my new issue today and it is awesome.
Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is the cane. Sup, Doc. Sup. How's it going? Hey, we got another doc coming on the show yeah, whatever. tonight. I'm so excited. I get another doctor. It's just embarrassing. <laughs> it's just embarrassing. He's a novelist. Let's just forget the other stuff. No, no, you cannot forget PhD, man. Okay. It is some, It means too much. So, But I watched some crazy good stuff this week. Um, but before we, I'm assuming you did as well, but you were traveling, right? I was traveling. Yep. I had a, I, I bummed my foot out by right, walking too much in New York. But uh, Oh my God. Been... Are you still whining about your foot? Yeah, I heard. I, I realized it was, my shoes were bad. So I bought a new pair of sneakers late last night and I felt so much better. It was like crazy. The <laughs> It was like having a broken foot and you put on new shoes and suddenly it was like Cinderella at the ball. Was great. Oh, yeah. uh, were they were it. they like bad boots i'm f- infamous for that where i like yeah. i love cheap shoes from like target um because they're cute and then like three hours later i'm like why did my feet hurt so bad and yeah. well these were just run dead the boots i wear every day for the last few years they're just run down there's nothing left of them so i didn't even notice as i was walking but you know the cool thing uh to report back is that like New York just felt completely reopened. It felt like completely normal. I needed to give a vaccine card everywhere I went, movie mm-hmm. theaters, um, you know, all sorts of events. But the only movie I saw there, the only reason it's relevant is because it leads into our plug. I mean, I was there for work, so I was seeing hundreds of teen films, but that's about it. Um, but I did get to see the Possession 4K uh, at the Metrograph, which is the the new, new as in the last few years, but I hadn't been uh, art house um, a theater in uh, New York that I'd always wanted to go to anyway. So uh, they were putting out possession. So I, I went with um, Mr. Rodman Flender from uh, Idle Hands Love, and it was a lot of fun to be able to watch that movie that way. But it was good for me to see it because now I can report back for our screening that it is utterly the best version visually we will have seen of this movie so far you know so my fear was that um as happens when you you know kind of turn things into nicer formats you know things becoming hd that suddenly we're going to see the seams on the monster how did the monster look? Uh, broadman said one thing that he thought he noticed but no i did notice a couple things no the monster still looked great and you know it's partially because they still i mean when i saw this on vhs kind of quality the first time i saw it you almost couldn't see anything and that works for it too because it's such a dark creature but in this version there's this glowing i mean I don't want to ruin anything for people who haven't seen it, but, and this, whatever, it probably won't, but there was like this glowing light from inside it that I'd never really could make out before. And this was clear, but it still looked awesome. So, so I was, I was really impressed. Um, and the whole film doesn't look, it won't look dramatically different if you've seen it in the last couple of years from the Blu-rays, but I just felt like the color and just everything about it looked the best because it's not like they're cleaning it and making it look you know, cheesy clean. It it mm-hmm. just looks the way the first work print might, you know, <laughs> before it went to theaters might have looked, which is, which is pretty great. So I'm excited. I don't want to say too much more about it, but we do want people to come and join us live the first time we've ever been live with this movie. Um, and we probably won't say too much up front because yeah. we don't want to spoil it, but afterwards we'll, we'll get into it and probably try to coach people through it. Cause I've already had a couple students of mine, uh, who watched it, not where I watched that watched it at beyond fest. And, they definitely had that first reaction of just stunned silence and not knowing what to even make of the movie. So I said, yeah, no, it is one of those movies. Sometimes you have to watch a couple times or you need to have to, you need to be able to talk a little bit afterwards to try to decode some of the stuff, like a Lynch movie in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it is such an emotional assault. It's not the brood. It's like made the same time as the broods, the same subject material, but the, the energy and kind of references and stuff are so, so much more chaotic in some ways. 
It's completely different. It, yeah. The brood is bonkers. This is draining. Um, yeah, it's a yeah. draining emotional thing. Yeah. But that said, hey, we are doing a live screening of the Possession 4K release at USC the evening of Monday 25th. This is a free screening. You can come watch the Possession um, 4K for nothing. Um, all you have to do is RSVP. We are requiring vaccinations um, because it is on USC campus and they require vaccinations to come on campus. And so um, that's it. It just costs you a vaccination. It is so worth it. And I've so I've never seen um, anything. I've never done any event on a Monday. This will be fascinating. Like, really? Never. No, I mean, and, I've never hosted anything. Well, and you, we have not um, together. I've hosted screenings at USC before, but ever since we started doing them as part of Colors of the Dark together, we have never hosted a screening together on USC campus. So I'm really excited. I love it um, because whenever we do this, it is this mix of just really wonderfully nerdy film students who we get to expose to these types of films for the first time. And then I've also noticed a bunch of our um, listeners online chiming in that they're coming along as well. So they put us in the big theater, like the 400 seat theater. Um, so we got to pack the fucking house to see possession, y'all. So I'm so excited my about this one. So I'm not in foreign territory with all these USC kids. I got to bring in some of that Hutchin crowd, yo. The Hutchin uh, crowd. I got a balance burst. Um, um, so you can RSVP for this. Um, the link is on every social. I posted it on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, so you come find it, click the RSVP link, and all you have to do is validate that you've had a vaccination and you can see it for free. Cool. I'm excited. I am actually, it's one of the few films I'm excited to see right away, mm-hmm. only because I know people think I see this all the time. I really don't. I, I try to only watch it every couple of years, if that, and usually only if a new form. Um, but but actually, like sometimes you do notice some of the filmmaking stuff that you don't always notice. Sometimes It's a movie kind of very easy to get lost in again and washed away with all the emotion. But sometimes if you step back and go, oh, just some of the camera movement stuff in it is so fascinating and like um it, it really has it kind of exhilarating so mm-hmm. i think it's gonna be fun on the filmmaking level too so that's gonna be a blast i i will say i also did we haven't talked in so long but there because i mean i went to new york but before that while you were away there was beyond fest so we haven't oh, i didn't God, even yeah i didn't even bring up those i'll just quickly i only saw two things before um i went away so i i really missed most of beyond fest but i was there for um the opening night which was titane or Titan, um, however it's said by uh, the director of Raw, Julia Docker now, which is cool because now that I can talk about it, it's actually in theaters, which is good because mm-hmm. uh, I hope people support this. This is Neon, this one con, uh, which is a big deal. It's a very edgy movie. Uh, it is a movie that I had seen almost every element in this movie. I do feel like I've seen in another movie at some point, but I've never seen it all in one movie. It was like, it's like she threaded all these, like the, the, the key ones I saw were, uh, Crash for sure, and Cronenberg's definitely her guy. Uh, Gaspar Noe's style and at moments, there's a documentary called The Imposter for a couple years ago, which mm-hmm. was fantastic. There's a huge story arc of that film in this film, and then the one that no one was talking about right after that, I I just was very excited about was uh, Donald Kamel's Demon Seed, and oh. <laughs> uh, that's kind of where the movie's heading in a way. Is Demon Seed. So if you mix and it's very sexy and it's very alive and it's very French and it's like borders that art house but it's also really in your face and and it's like it's transgressive with a capital t this is not a safe like uh indie darling by any means um and it's really provocative and it's and it was exciting to see it with a crowd and that's honestly it's the most safe i've felt this whole pandemic was sitting in a room with 500 people who all had to show their vaccine cards because Mm -hmm. suddenly i felt totally like at ease being in a movie and it was exciting and we're all there for the right so i i definitely highly recommend this movie and 
honestly, she gave one of the best host Q and A's I've heard in a very long time. She was there, which is a big deal, given um, you know that she's got probably a pretty busy schedule right now. She she was very a- able to articulate her own work and her own ideas better than most people I've ever seen with with work that is challenging like this she mm-hmm. she wasn't like just doing the lynch you know it's up to fate <laughs> what do you think it means which yeah. was my complaint with uh it follows when um somebody was like oh, so yeah. what does it mean and the director was like what do you think it means i i my eyes rolled so hard I, they fell out of my I head loved it. i loved it i know you he did put a, he put a giant in his movie what more in detroit what more do you want becca you got a giant <laughs> um but but no i think this is a wild movie i wouldn't want to say too much more but there's an actor in it um for me it's one of those movies where has a little bit of it starts very genre like horror stuff with an opening storyline that then switches into a very different type it keeps switching into a different type of movie but it's one of those movies where it's a little on the outside of it and then this guy enters the story he's like a fire fire police chief played by the actor you've seen in literally a hundred films that aren't horror in france vincent linden not not necessarily a name you would necessarily recognize but you would totally recognize his face and it becomes electric it's like to me one of the performances of the year you're just like whoa when he enters the story it really changes the dynamic and it's a great movie i don't i don't like if i'm doing my end of the year horror list this will be a weird one because i don't know like i put it on right now on my temp list but i don't even know if it's, it is hard it's touching all these hard beats definitely body horror but it's like also something else and it's in that weird hard to classify movie so uh which is also cool you can make any list you want but definitely recommend Titan. um and then i saw you know halloween kills is about to come out on peacock I think. And I saw that uh, David Gordon Green. And I'm not the target for this one, I don't think, because I think this will satisfy a lot of people. I think I think the first one had a clearer story. I definitely don't want to give any spoilers here, so I will tread very carefully. Uh, the On the plus side, Anthony Michael Hall as Tommy Doyle, a grown-up Tommy Doyle, totally made my day. He is a big part of the movie. I thought it was going to be a cameo. Like when I heard his name was in this movie, he's a major role in this. So it's so cool to see the guy from Breakfast Club, the nerd, grow up to be you know, this major character in this movie. Um, but at times it felt a little too much like a Jason movie. To, I don't know. Like there's something that's very cutty and, and the kills are very gory and very violent. And I never mm-hmm. think of Michael that way in my brain uh, as the character. So some of that like bumped with me a little bit, but you know, it was definitely the right crowd to see it with. And, you know, I, I feel like the fact that it's going to get a, go straight to a Peacock as well means everyone's going to get to see it right away. And it's probably the right move for this movie. You know, people mm-hmm. enjoy it. So, so they were both fun to see with crowds at Beyond Fest. And it was, I wish I'd gone to some of the other stuff there. There's some really cool stuff. I wish you had been in town same time. Yeah. Lost another yeah. Beyond Fest together. So yeah, when, when Beyond Fest was going on, I was in Virginia at a film conference um, talking to students about the art of screenwriting and making movies. And then after that, I had to host a screening of uh, Night Beast. And yes. so, um, yeah, like, you know, Night Beast isn't going to screen itself, Elric. Um, if any movie could, <laughs> Night Beast could screen itself. I'm legit surprised they're going to let me back in the state after I, out of everything I could show, I chose Night Beast. Right. Um, but it, it played well, so... But I have watched some really cool stuff um, over the past two weeks just because I've been diving in with all of the amazing releases. So I'm going to start with a new one that came to Netflix. Um, there's someone in the house. And this. Yeah, too. So this one, I read the book last year. This was one of the ones that I think I probably talked about on Deep Cut, um, which is where most of my uh, books end up. Um, but this is one that I had read last year, which is the book is kind of a straightforward slasher, but it's a clever slasher. Like I had really enjoyed the book. Did you say you saw this one too? I didn't read the book, but I, did, I just watched this one. Um, 
because we're, me and my writing partner were writing a uh, slash a story where people, uh, the victim intended face was worn in. I was like, oh shit. And that's gone now. <laughs> I, I like, <laughs> we're not going to finish that outline. <laughs> so, and that is, that is the, uh, the problem of being a screenwriter. Yeah, yeah, oh shit. Wait, yeah. what's coming out? Um, but yeah, that is kind of the hook of this. So the books by Stephanie Perkins um, goes to Netflix and the whole setup, it's about a group of seniors in this tiny town and all of a sudden they start dying. A killer is picking them off one by one. Whenever the killer picks them off, he or her releases a a big secret thing of theirs and sends it out to the entire town, be it a video or a photo or something that, you know, is this giant secret of theirs that they've been concealing from this small town. And that's kind of the whole thing is that this killer is trying to show that everyone in the town is like not who they say they are. They all have these giant secrets. The hook is that he wears a mask that looks like them. He or she wears a mask that looks like them while they are doing the killing. So the killer will show up and I'll literally be staring at something in my face and then I'll get a text of like, you know, all this crazy stuff and then then the killing happens. So the and last so face you see is, a, is like your own. Is, is your cool. own, yeah. um, which is supposed to be like, you know, the whole secret and the mirror image and the we are not what we say we are. And it's heavy. This was produced by um, James Wan's Atomic Monster in um, conjunction with Sean Levy, who did Stranger Things. And uh, this it's riddled with horror references. That was kind of the cool thing for me is it, it had a lot of winks at other horror films that I was able to watch and go, oh, I see what you did there. That's from Nightmare. Um, but this has gotten mixed reviews. And for me, this was not as fun as the book was. Mm. Um, the book was fun. This was really heavy for me. And I can't say it did anything new to the slasher genre for me. So this was not one of my favorite ones I've watched recently. I liked it. It definitely is. Hey, yeah, it's not as fun as it could be. But I, what what I liked about it, like where it went by the end, was a little less fun. But what I liked about the setup, it's, it's maybe the most faithful to me of the feeling of the late 90s post-screen movies because there's so many that. that aren't like that like that that try to be like that this one actually felt like that it actually felt like if it had i mean if it didn't look the way it did it, it might feel like a lost movie from that period and i actually enjoyed that level of it quite a lot uh, i thought the lead actress her name's sydney park i found her really she just had a quality that I, I found really watchable. She she was, I think her backstory is she comes from Hawaii or something, her mm. backstory and thing. And she just, there's something about her that I found, like, I thought she was a really good choice. Um, you know, there's some of the, some of the story stuff direction that goes by the end, like the, the eternal problem of the slasher, the whodunit quality to me is a little less exciting, you know, but the buildup was fun. I, I had fun with the kills and was into it. I didn't, I didn't love it, but I thought it was really cool. And that is directed by, um, the director of the creep films creep one and two mm-hmm. patrick bryce and this is a very different type of movie from his other oh god ones. yeah right his other yeah. ones are like micro you know obviously made just with the you know a handful of people so uh this is a lot bigger scale but yeah no yeah. I, I definitely think for people looking for that post 90s vibe uh screen it could be a, a fun one but it did definitely feel post 90s and i did enjoy the kills in this it did have really mm-hmm. innovative kills and how they were working in the mask and the reflection and everything like yeah. that yeah. So that one's on Netflix, right? Yeah. 
And then I'm going to follow this up with one um, because it's really, really similar, so much so that I watched them back to back and then had to go back and remember which elements were in which one. Um, So that was There's Someone in the House, which is now on Netflix based off a book by Stephanie Perkins. Continuing with the trend of titling your movie with an entire fucking sentence, One of Us is Lying, Mm. um, I also watched. This is based off a book by Karen McManus that I had read um, the... One of Us is Lying, and then I can't even remember her second book. I read that one as well um, during the pandemic and had raved about One of Us is Lying, I believe, on Deep Cuts as well. Go there for all my book coverage. Um, One of Us is Lying, they did as a TV show. It's a series, and they took it to Peacock. Um, I guess it's going to have to be a limited series, Mm. or maybe they're going to keep going because the book series kept going. I think they're on like book number three by now, Mm. Um, possibly more. But this one, I really liked the book for this. It was honestly one of my favorite books that I'd read during the pandemic. One of us is lying. It's basically set up like Breakfast Club with a murder. It is a group of students from all different social groups within the school. All different cliques are shoved into detention together. While they are there, one of the students goes into anaphylactic shock from an allergic reaction and dies. And what they later find out is that this student had been dosed. Somebody had poisoned him for lack of a better way of saying it and that it had to happen from somebody who was in that room and so they know that out of the five people or six that went into detention one of them is the killer and they're all high school students so it's just a really cool setup Mm -hmm. um the tv show definitely moved a little bit more slowly than i was expecting it to but that said i i kind of enjoyed this um and where this went and i am on episode three now um and i'm i'm really excited to keep watching it through it's doing some things different from the book but it's still staying true to that like breakfast club with a murder yo your ass just jumped uh the biggest news which was uh, Becca McKendry on Eli Roth's horror show. I didn't. Oh, even, shit. I haven't been watching the new season. I actually like that show. I haven't watched the new season, but people were posting. I was like, I didn't even. I didn't even remember you being recording that. Maybe I do. Was yeah, it the pandemic? It was. It was during the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I did a couple of those like talking head shows during the pandemic, which were always kind of taxing because it's like, hey, do I take my mask off? Okay, yeah, yeah let's do this. Um, oh, but I will double back and say, one of us is lying is on Peacock. But yeah. Um, I am on the Eli Ross history Which episode of was it that you just were on? Which one was it? Like, what was the theme? Uh, the one that I was just on was Contagions. I'm on, out of the six episodes, I think I'm on five of them. Okay, um, cool. The only one I didn't do was sequels. And I don't know why. I think we just ran out of time. Um, but yeah, I'm on most of them. So Brian Collins, I don't know if you saw that Brian Collins tweeted. He was like, uh, that new new Shutter show coming about the horror icons. And he's like, it's got all the all the big names. It's got like, you know, some major director and Jamie Claris and our Kane. I, I guess I made the I made the trailer. <laughs> so at least I have one line in the trailer, if not in the show. So something to be excited. Is that the one that Phil produced? The film? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, we shot the, that. That was like in the scary in, part uh, of the pandemic. Yes, towards when we got back from it. I can't remember. It's- that was the very first shoot I went on in the middle of the pandemic. Because I remember I was still very conscious about standing six yeah. feet away from people and yeah that one that was pre-vaccination but don't get um, too excited people because we we still might have been cut out i mean we might they might just be using me in the trailer to get you hyped <laughs> just to pull the rug under you when the show finally comes up but no it looks like a fun show um okay so then i had i had another netflix one um 
this is okay. So ritual, the ritual was a big deal movie a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and it, definitely one of my favorites of that year. The uh, writer of the novel that's based on is Adam Neville. And they have just done another film adaptation of one of his other books uh, called No One Gets Out Alive. Um, this is directed by... What is with the titles? The like full sentence titles we've got. There's someone in the house. One of us is lying. Well, no you gotta, one gets out alive. A hundred years of movies. A lot of the good one words have now been taken. And it's really hard to get away. Like every time I look up a great one word title, it's always been done. You only get one fear. And yeah, then it's yeah, exactly. And it's, and Actually, we've good. had a couple fears. Mark, Mark Wahlberg hitting his chest right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so this one is directed by guys Santiago uh, Mengahini, and he made a really big deal short film uh, a few years ago called Milk. And I remember his mm-hmm. being a big visual effects guy uh, who directs his own stuff. Anyway, this is an interesting movie. So it's a it, it's an immigrant uh, story where she is uh, pretending that she's from Dallas, but she's actually from Mexico. She's like trying to survive in America by taking all sorts of kind of low income jobs. She's in Ohio, I believe the story takes place. And for some reason, I can't remember why, but she has no money. So she has to go into this big boarding house, which is this big spooky boarding house. And then she finds uh, like, you know, kind of a weird, seemingly abusive guy running the place and a bunch of desperate other people inside the house. And you're you're not really sure what what the story is going to be. And um, it becomes obviously a crazy nightmare once she kind of gets stuck there and you realize they are uh, keeping people there for a reason in this house. Now, the problem with this movie, it's so weird. Look, this movie of any movie I've seen this year has all the elements to be Ulrich's favorite movie of the year. It has really spooky ghost thing <clears throat> when the lights go out. It has a very kind of, you know, adult vibe to the whole whole thing. I don't want to give away what happens at the end, but in the last like act, there is one of the coolest creatures, just like Ritual, unleashed a creature. This unleashes a really original crazy looking creature at the end. So worth watching just for that, like just to get to the end and see an amazing design. But for me, like this movie didn't work at all. Not even one, like it just completely unlike ritual that had the story that was organic and made sense. Nothing in the story of this film, the direction's good, but like in terms of the visuals and stuff, but there's something really off to me about how the stakes are really never there. Even though it's all life and death all the time, I never really was invested. And I've had a couple friends, you know, who I, talk to it and they kind of had a very similar reaction. So I will, I definitely want you to see this one because I'd be mm-hmm. curious to, to hear if you have, but there are, there are definitely winning elements inside this movie. So it's not like a hard pass. I think people should check it out because uh, you can tell the material probably interesting. I bet the book's good. Um, but the creatures that throughout are all interesting and it has like, it's almost doing too much, too many different horror things um, in the film, but this one's on Netflix. So it's an easy pickup. That's no one gets out alive. Unfortunately, it just, didn't come together as a story for me and i trust me i really wanted it to because i really thought that you know some of the design was cool wow okay so that was no one gets out alive on netflix um i'm gonna continue with my netflix stuff i have two actual netflix titles um this was a rewatch for me i feel like i watch this film like every five years um just because it's like a warm and fuzzy blanket and that is the cave and the way that i had this is from 2005 the way that i happened upon the cave is i had logged into netflix one night and I had intentions. I was going to watch Blood Red Sky just because somebody had recommended it to me. I still haven't done that. Um, yeah, it looked, it's vampires on a plane. I was mm-hmm. kind of like, you know what? I'm interested. Um, but I still have not seen Blood Red Sky because as soon as I logged in, you know how it puts that like now trending? And number two in the United States at that exact moment was The Cave from 2005. I have no fucking clue why, but it was listed as number two. It's because um, everyone's excited about Wings Hauser and his son is in this movie. Cole Hauser is the lead. 
So go Cole Hauser. Yeah. <laughs> that must be it. That that had to be it. But yeah, it was listed as number two. And I was like, oh, fuck it. I'm watching the cave again. Let's do this. And so I how how is that number again. two? How on earth did that turn? I have no clue. I should have taken a picture Weird. because I was like, why the hell is this trending? But it was listed as number two in the US on the current trends chart. It wasn't and I even was like, trending when it came out. <laughs> It has never trended before. So how the hell they did that? Apparently it plays well on Netflix. And I mean, and it does have a great poster. It is a really good poster. Um, So I was like, you know what? I'm in. And it is beautifully dated. But God, this movie is still just fun for me. Um, So the whole setup of The Cave from 2005, which I think I saw in the theaters when it first came out, is that um, there's this church that has been built over this massive, massive cave structure, I believe in Romania. I might be getting that wrong. Scratch that. I have no idea where it is. Yeah, you're right. Romania. It is Romania. Okay. Maybe I do. Um, So this church has been built over this massive cave structure. And one day, um, while these people are trying to excavate the church, it starts collapsing and then it reveals this massive cave structure beneath it. And so this team of researchers and, you know, Navy SEALs, the team, they assembled the team. It's my favorite type of movie. Um, they assemble a team of all of these different types of strengths and odd personalities and bring them together to go into this cave and track it and see where it comes out on the other side. And it's huge and massive and they have to have people who are trained in rock climbing and spelunking and scuba diving because parts of the cave are underwater. And so you get all these like crazy people coming together. And then they go in and they discover that the cave is fucking riddled with monsters, but not just any monsters. They are ground dwelling animals that have been mutated by a parasite that exists in the cave and have become these giant fucking monsters. And thus we have our movie. God damn it. Um, now you're, you actually make me want to watch the cave again. Right? And I you need to watch the cave again. I watched it one time and I was like a little underwhelmed. But like even looking at the poster, I have no memory of what the creature does. It's and, fun. There's a bunch of creatures. There's a whole bunch of different creatures. And it's There's got like, the girl from Coyote Ugly in it. It's got Lana right? Headley from Game of Thrones. It's got everyone in it. How Lana Headley is, she plays the, the nerdy scientist who is only there to do research. And she doesn't know nothing about spelunking or scuba diving, but she has to if they're going to survive the cave. And yeah, so right. it's, I'm kind of it's interested. fun. No wonder it's um, trending. You're out there talking about it so much. <laughs> you made it reverse trend somehow. So yeah, I um, this was 2005 where everything was super, super serious. So it's played super, super serious, but it's just fun. Like I had a blast rewatching it. Um, and there was a knockoff of it that came out around the same time, a really low budget knockoff called The Cavern. <laughs> Um, that I was suddenly like, I vaguely remember the cavern and immediately added it to my queue because I was like, I need to see the cavern. Next. That one so I don't think I saw. So you'll tune have to into like deep cuts in two weeks to hear about the cavern. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that is The Cave, a 20 year old movie that somehow became number two on Netflix on wow. some idle Tuesday night. And so I had to rewatch it. It's like uh, Gaspar No in summer last year, I think Gaspar Noe's love started to trend on Netflix after being on there for a year because I guess teenagers 
found out about it and they're daring each other to watch it and it became this like <laughs> and i was like that is so funny like i find that hilarious that, that no, he would like, love that he would love that you know when you're done slapping teachers and eating tide pods go watch casper yeah. noe's love watch the ejaculation <laughs> on screen it's pretty bizarre hilarious um, i got two more uh, uh, i got one. two more as well uh so uh the next one is um by a uh, long time uh you know friend of the of the crew uh, Axel Carolyn's new yeah. new Amazon Blumhouse uh, movie. I get. I don't. I guess it's a grouping of movies that they've been doing. Um, yeah, it's called The Manor, and um, it's actually really cool. Like you know, what I liked about it is I like that Barbara Hershey is on screen for every second of this, and it gets rarer and rarer for uh, you know, obviously uh, once you know the actors are in an older demographic there's just those kind of roles dry up really quick. So I definitely felt like a love letter to somebody who you know is like. A real, I, I've always just thought one of the most beautiful women to ever live, but also just a great actress. Uh, the Entity is one of another film where she's on screen every second of that movie under mm-hmm. grueling situations. So this is her as a grandmother who, you know, she's the only, the only ru- thing I rubbed with a bit it was she's having her birthday and she's turning 70 and they're all like, wow, she's so old and everything. Oh so old. And I was like, wait a minute, my mom's like 74 and still walking like, a hundred miles in Spain on some road. So I, I, she just, I felt like maybe she should have been, maybe they should have called it a slightly older age, but that's, you know, that is what it is. She 70 man. It's, yeah. uh, God, half the people I co-teach with are in their seventies. Yeah. They can still do more pushups than so, I can. No, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, but maybe, you know, maybe that tied in a little bit to story, but she, no, she's like fully with it, but she's had a stroke at the start of the movie. So she thinks, well, I don't want to be a burden. Her daughter and her aren't very close, but she's very close with her grandson who's like, you know, kind of cool skater kid. And she uh, decides herself that she'll go to her kind of a a version of her retirement home um, to not be a burden because she's concerned she's about to get, you know, age quickly, I guess, you know, once, once health things start kicking in. So she checks herself in and it's this beautiful old house. It's the manor, right? And then it starts getting, you know, she starts seeing people who are under a lot of duress and don't seem to want to be there. And it's, you know, a a bit of mystery. It has, it's more like a serious version of a, Bubba Hotep story, or you've seen some of these stories before where somebody checks into someplace they won't check out. But there was some elements I really liked about it that I really held. I mean, it's nice and short. It's 80 minutes. Like a lot of these ones, it feels somewhere between a TV movie because that's obviously the, I feel like these Bloomhouse Amazon movies are kind of like the modern equivalent in a way, kind of like the, um, what was that series that they did? The Into the Dark series for Hulu. Uh, you know, it's in that kind of ballpark, but, you know, obviously a little more cinematic, I think, with some of the set pieces. But she, she starts to see this dark figure standing above her roommate, maybe draining some sort of life. And of course, no one believes her. The people at the place treat her very poorly. They just kind of write off all, all elderly people. So she tries to enlist her grandson into trying to get the, get to the truth of what's going on in this place. And I won't spoil it, but there's, there's a pretty cool creature thing. There's some interesting, uh, like dynamics with the other patients. There was enough that to hold my interest. Uh, the thing that I really loved, it also has Jill Larson from, um, taking of deborah logan who obviously played the uh the woman with um dementia in that film but uh, a couple things worth mentioning bruce davison is the co-star of this he's like you know from all the million movies and the x-men movies and stuff uh and he's one of the guys you know she gets friendly with in the place and as i'm watching it i'm like oh one of my old i just kind of clicked that one of my favorite movies of all time is very very almost impossible to see movie called last summer and it's from 1969 Mm -hmm. and it's barbara uh, Hershey and Bruce Davidson went in 1969 together, like in their bikinis and bathing suits. So I had that moment where I was like, this is so cool to see them. What is that? 40, 
plus more than 40 years later, going from these young, perfect bodies to older people together, just seeing them still doing their craft. That element alone, got, I know, just made me happy. Um, but very interesting to know the the teenage character, the skater, has a very big pin that is very prominently featured that says Shockwaves Podcast. So, oh, damn! There, there, there is a throwback show reference in there. Um, and there's a lot of cameos, as you'd expect. Aw, people, people thank you, you Axel. That's amazing. You might see some uh, Mendez and many other people pop up. Mendez is just making his way into everybody's Total stuff now. Or- Yep. Yeah, he's just <laughs> there. He can. Uh, but uh, but no, yeah, I, th- I think I think you'll dig this. Uh, I think it. You know, again, I think quieter horror like this won't be for everyone. But I think because it has some interesting creature stuff too, I think that would get people. And again, it's eighty minutes and has a nice spooky tone to it. Nice. Um, so that's the manner. I'm excited to watch all of these. Like Bingo Hell, which is um, Gigi uh, Saw Guerrero's, looks amazing. I'm just excited to see every single one of these. Um, so I'm going to jump us back to Netflix for a bit, oh. and I'm going to get they into- They paid sponsorship for today's show? <laughs> they really should, because I spent mm. some time on Netflix. Um, I'm going to go to Nightbooks. Now, Nightbooks is a kids- I won't even call it kids. I will say it is kids. It's a kids movie on Netflix. Um, Halloween kids movie, but this is like intense for a kids movie. It's PG. Um, I started it with Marnie and thought she was going to lose her shit. And she ended up seeing it through. And Marnie's pretty hardcore when it comes to watching horror. Like she's mm. seen Jaws and Tremors and stuff like this. These, this was actually scary. She's seen Poltergeist. What? This was scarier oh. than Jaws, Tremors, and Poltergeist somehow. Hmm. Um, it definitely, you know, did it, it wasn't sexual enough to be a PG-13. It didn't have adult situations. But they pull no punches on those scares in this movie. So night books, um, the setup of this, it is, it is a brilliant setup. It is basically tales from the dark side, but even more clever. The setup is that this boy loves, he's, he's an elementary school kid or maybe sixth grade. Um, he writes nothing but horror stories. He loves writing scary stories and his friends make fun of him for it. So one day he's running out of his apartment and he's ready to go burn all of his stories in the basement. He is just traumatized and, and ready to completely burn all of his horror stuff. And on his way there, he gets lured into an apartment in the building and trapped by a witch. Hmm. And as soon as he's in the apartment and trapped, the witch teleports the apartment and he now belongs to her. And his job is that he has to write a horror story every day and read it to her that night. And so he's there literally to keep her amused. He is, he is reading her horror stories every night. And so it is part anthology film where you are getting these stories that he's been reading, but it is really clever because most of the movie is not that most of the movie is him and this other girl who's been captured functioning with the witch, living with the witch while trying to find ways to get away from the witch to fight to, to because the, the apartment that they get trapped in it time travels and it teleports all over. Um, and she goes out and hunts for more victims to eat. Hmm. And so it's because she usually eats children. Doesn't somebody interesting play the witch. I thought I saw it. Yes, it is. Um, Kristen Ritter, who was Jessica Jones. Right. That's right. She's good. I like her. She is amazing in this just gorgeous. Hmm. And so it, there is, um, it's a love letter to lost boys. Like he watches hmm. lost boys at the beginning. They redo the cry little sister song and it hmm. plays a couple of times in the movie. There's a lot of lost boys references. Um, it's a huge production. This is like a massive movie. Um, and it is just a really cool aesthetic throughout. There's this cool scene where they're in the witch's garden and there's this type of 
bug skeleton creature called Shredders. And it is just the coolest scene in the movie that my kids watched over and over. Like they've been watching it. They just, my son will come home from school and be like, can we watch the Shredder scene again? And they'll just go queue up that scene. It's such a tight little set piece. Um, But yeah, this one, I I had sat down to watch it with Marnie thinking, okay, I'm going to watch some kids horror now. Um, I've been watching a lot of that, but man, this one was just good. And it took me back to seeing things like the Goonies or Gremlins or, you know, even Tales from the Dark Side when I was a kid and how those kind of just captivated me and brought me in or even Hocus Pocus. It's a little scarier than Hocus Pocus, but yeah. And that is, um, I I actually kind of recommend this for adults too. I had such a fun time with it that I was kind of like, man, I wish somebody had made me watch this even without my kids. So that is Night Books currently on Netflix. Nice. Um, my last one for me was a shutter one that I'd been very excited about seeing. I watched it late last night the way it should be. And that is a new installment of the VHS sagas. We are talking VHS 95. So this is, uh, is it 95, 94? Yeah, I think it's 95. 94? 94. Shit. I'm yeah. already screwing it up. I'm VHS- already yawning. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. We've been, you know, we, we've been doing this well. Uh, VHS 94. You're right. Uh, and this one, um, you know, okay. I'm a little mixed. Uh, I loved the first couple segments and definitely was a little cooler on the next couple, but they're all interesting. And I think it takes the franchise in a really cool, interesting new redesign. I liked it a lot more than Mm -hmm. say part three. Um, uh, But it's, it's, you know, like these are always a bit of a mixed bag. I think what it is, is I love it when the feeling I'm watching it and it really reminds me of the aesthetic of that time. Let's say it's 94. And I think the first couple really did. And then the Mm -hmm. third one, which is some people online, think is one of the best shorts ever uh which is timo giganto uh who made you know i think one of the best segments of anything in the history of segments in vhs2 he did the um the cult one you know with the cult one with daddy it's just pure genius and this one has the same kind of epicness but it has this kind of it actually felt that reminded me a little bit of um the movie you turned me on to for um our body horror thing uh tokyo gore police it's it's Mm -hmm. a more realistic version of the creation of of things that look like that like it's a mad doctor turning people into these these creatures like that and for me even though that's cool on its own it, it for me broke the thing that i was like enjoying which was to be honest being surprised by found footage again which is when it goes away for a while, it's always nice because found footage, especially in an anthology, can be really surprising. Found footage in a feature becomes predictable often because you start to, they become so limited where they can go. But in a short, you know, that limited point of view perspective really helps. And um, the first one, well, there's a, there's a wraparound that I didn't fully understand. A SWAT team like investigates a warehouse and finds all this weird kind of VHS stuff and weird bodies posed places. And that that the, the I'd say the wraparounds of this series have never been that strong. On the, They've never know. really seemed to give them like it's they're not trying to make the wraparounds meaty. They're merely just yeah. vehicles to get you into the shorts. I Which I wish say. I think if they make another one, it'd be cool to change it. Like really make the make the actual a story the thing you're hinging on. But I, maybe it's not that e- easier said than done. But um, the ones I really uh, for me stood out here was um. So Chloe Okuno, who I've been, you know, telling everyone for the last eight years or whatever since I saw her short slut uh, at, um, uh, at at the time, it was a, yeah, it was a theory, right? We saw it at Theory. I'm yeah. so glad she finally did something because yeah, we no, had been like waiting for her to do something. Love that short, and it's really cool. And her one is uh, called Storm Drain, but if you go online anywhere, people are saying Hail Ratma, and that comes from her story because there is rumors. So it's said in like '94, right? So it's the cheesy news is like doing a story on. 
uh, somebody who's being called the rat man who lives in sewers that people are reporting. So this, this, you know, uh, on camera host and her cameraman go, let's just do a story about people in the area, get some color on it. And then they end up going deeper into the drain and then stuff happens. And it, honestly, it's really quite fun. And it, I thought it's very different. I, I thought tonally in a way than her short, but this one instantly kind of grabbed me and I was like, yeah, I'm into this. This is a lot of fun, uh, dark thing. But then surprise, you know, I didn't particularly like, uh, I didn't think, um, Simon Barrett's, um, seance was my favorite of the year i thought it was okay uh his his short in this i think is really great i i i mean obviously he's like one of the co- co- core creators of the whole vhs thing anyway um as a writer but uh, his one is called the empty wake and it's a girl who works at this wake place and so where they'll be there at all night with the body uh people can come and spend some time with it it's it's on a really rainy night so no one's showing up her boss has left her there alone and the body, you know, the actual car, uh, you know, the casket moves slightly and then it goes completely bonkers by the end. And it's just a good use of found footage, super simple. And and you can get a lot of mileage from a really creepy short story like that. And I that one really stood out for me as something that I like. So overall, uh, and then the last one is Ryan Prowse, who um, made Low Life, which I fucking love. Mm-hmm. And I, I love always, Low yeah, Life. Always champion yeah. that one. This one I think I need to see again. I feel like the last two, Timo's and Ryan's, are both or they're longer and they feel like really interesting shorts on their own, but maybe for me didn't fit in as well into an anthology, but it's more like, it feels like a movie when, when we were talking the bleeding skull guys, it feels like an SOV film from that time period about a group of people, you know, kind of gun, gun right type activists who all live on a, on their own land. But in the end, there's some sort of creature in a barn they have to deal with. And it's, it's like part training video, part where it's really unusual and i think because it was late at night i almost feel like i need to watch that particular segment again one more time because it had some Mm -hmm. cool stuff but it was so stylized uh in in a different way from the other films that it kind of stood out so either way i'm definitely giving this a wreck uh you know even i'm always mixed there no one's ever not mixed on anthologies for the most part um but it was just also just fun to see something i didn't know where they're all going and that's something you don't always get with features uh at the moment so uh so it's it's on shutter i definitely think it's a good late night uh crazy movie and i hope they make more of them I, it's one of those series that i'd happily have one every couple of years and see get new blood continually making short stories. yeah the first and the second were an absolute blast yeah. i remember seeing both of those at like theatrical screenings and just thinking that they were just fantastic Third one lost me a bit. I'm excited it's back. And I did get a press release where Shudder said today that it was like the highest ranking film that they had ever had. Like they had received more views than they'd ever had with um, any film so far. Second only to The Cave on Netflix. Only. That's on Netflix. Yeah, they're they're competing (laughs) on different channels. Well, I'm now going to go to a different streaming platform for my final film of the night. I'm headed to Disney+. Plus. Um, because you know there's no fucking way we're getting out of here without me talking about Muppet's Haunted Mansion. No spoilers though, because I want to see it. I want to Right? I wanna it, it is so good. Okay, good. I'm good. just I was shocked. Um, so at Muppets for me, I mean Muppets are a huge part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Like Muppets and Horror, that was everything. Like Muppets and Scooby Doo defines every Saturday morning at my house growing up. Um, and so Muppets, I've always liked them best when they do parody, like Muppets Treasure Island is just an amazing treat. Muppets Christmas Carol is remarkable. Yeah, mm-hmm. They just always do Muppets in space is not so great. It's it, you know, they mm-hmm. do really well with these parody movies. Um, this finding out that it wasn't like Muppets most wanted. I was 
interested in, but it was very much about the humans, hmm. which lost a little bit of the magic for me. Um, so I, I was excited about this because it was clearly that, you know, the humans were just there as like an afterthought. And oh, yeah, it's focused on the Muppets. And it was a parody again, um, which is exactly what I needed. So this, it follows the story of Gonzo. It's Halloween night and Kermit is having like some huge Halloween party over here. And that's all you see of Kermit is occasionally Gonzo calls him on the phone and Kermit's like, where are you at, Gonzo? And then the party continues just raging in the background. Mm -hmm. um, but Gonzo, and he's taking um, uh, Pepe, the King Prawn, along with him, decide to go spend the night. He's been invited to spend the night in the haunted home of one of his greatest idols, who is this amazing magician named MacGuffin, <laughs> who perished in the mansion, just disappeared. He didn't die. He just disappeared within the mansion walls one day, like 50 years ago, and Gonzo has received this weird invite to go spend the night in the ma the mansion where this guy disappeared. And so he gets there and it's the haunted mansion and you start encountering people from the haunted mansion and everything like that. I won't go any further um, into the plot, but it is just an absolute trip. There are so many fucking horror references in this. I am waiting for somebody to make like a letterbox or a list online. There was a goddamn deathbed reference, mm. which I had to fast forward back because I'm watching it with my kids. And they're really into it. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, that was a deathbed. Like, and it's real subtle. Hmm. Um, I will let people find it on their own. There's a Nightmare on Elm Street 4 reference. Hmm. Um, and I mean, I probably counted 20. I'm excited. I'm sure there were some I was missing because I wasn't watching for them at first. I wasn't thinking of it as like a self-retroventional film until I think I probably saw the Nightmare 4 one. And then I was like, I got that. And then I started watching for them. Um, so I'm hoping to God somebody makes a list. But it is just, um, it's everything I love about the Muppets. It's fun. It's funny. The songs are great. And it's also mixed with everything I love about Disney, which is my jam with Disney is always spooky Disney. Um, and the Haunted Mansion is my zen. Like I would have my ashes sprinkled there if Disney allowed it. They don't. I've already looked into it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's so one of the, I was thinking about it the other day. It's one of the places when I went real small before watching horror films, probably like five or six. And the one of my first moments of knowing, like being scared of something, but also loving it or feeling like I might love it was when you're in the dark, when, when the lights turn out and you're in the dark at the start and then the room starts expanding. Uh -huh. And I remember feeling like, it was so dangerous and scary, but I also, there's something inside me that liked the feeling. And then at the end of the ride where you could see the reflection, like that, ne that feeling never left me from that age. I feel like that's as strong an impact on me as anything I ever saw to fall in love with horror, yeah. like that feeling of that place. That's it. It has never aged. It never gets old. I, mm -hmm. I agree with you. It's a, it's a really special place. Um, I want to see this, but do I need to see the Eddie Murphy one first? Cause I have no, how, no. It, how, how related are they? Is there a lot of cross? There's actually one reference that I picked up. It was okay. really minor, but like my kids love the Eddie Murphy one, oh, really? um, which I'm always like, it's, you know, it's not a great story. Yeah. Um, I will say the zombies in it are really cool. It's got all these zombies that were done by, I think, Rick Baker, maybe Greg Nicotero. It was somebody major because, man, those zombies look like fucking amazing in that movie. Okay. Um, like, and they're Italian zombies where they're like rotting. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's that that is the high point of the Eddie Murphy movie. But no, the Eddie Murphy movie actually does not follow the plot of the Haunted Mansion ride in any capacity, um, aside from maybe having Madame Leota in it. 
But we would but still this, recommend watching Bowfinger just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. <laughs> just rules. for the hell of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this this actually follows the ride. Like, and okay. it's got little inside jokes with the ride. Like, if you know mm-hmm. the history of the ride, there's little inside jokes there too. Um, so it's fun. You've convinced I, me for a kid weekend viewing. I will do it. it. You know, it was it was an absolute blast. Do you have to, to buy it this. for more, or is it on Disney mm-hmm. Plus? No, it's on Disney Plus. Okay. You just get it. It's amazing. There was also, and this is straight up for parents. There is a um, movie on there called uh, Wrapped Under Wraps, which is a mummy movie for kids that I watched last night, which I won't recommend the way that I'll recommend Muppets Haunted Mansion. But it was really cute. And if you do have like an eight year old who's into horror, Mummy Under Wraps was pretty cute. And if you don't have kids, go see Titan. <laughs> go see Titan then. Do not take don't watch under wraps. Do not, do not watch under wraps. Just go see so. Titan. Um, okay. Well, we are. That's all, that's our new stuff. We are very excited. We've been we've been waiting. There's a couple delays in this this episode happening, uh, but very excited for our guest who's coming to join us right now. I am so excited to welcome our guest to the show tonight. Um, Not only have I been stalking him for like 10 years now, online, online, this is actually my first time seeing him in person. Um, And additionally, I rarely get to say this, welcome to the show, Dr. And he's also a PhD. Welcome, Stephen Jones Graham. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Honored to be here. Wait, is he a doctor and a PhD or a doctor because he's a PhD? No, no, no. Dr. Stephen Joan Graham's PhD because he fucking deserves both because no one knows how hard that shit is. <laughs> I feel like I have a pretty good idea. <laughs> uh, with an MFA, I feel like, you know, we did it for like a couple years and I played with cameras. But that's the same thing you guys did, right? How many years yeah. did it take you? Like a couple. Uh, let's not be specific. No. <laughs> how many years did it take you, Stephen? Uh, to get my PhD, mm-hmm. two years. I didn't take. Oh, d- holy shit! You like streamlined that shit. Oh my, and I that did. includes like dissertation and everything. Everything. Holy crap! Mine was like five and a little left over. Yeah, that. Um, That's- I definitely drug it out. <laughs> No, but five five and a half is still pretty fast for a PhD. It is. <laughs> so. This is America. We're alienating our audience by talking about education. <laughs> we have to get back to our base here, uh, you know, because I just don't, I don't know. It's highfalutin around here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have been dying to have Steven on the show for a long time. I know we've been like talking online about this um, for a long stretch and we wanted to wait till his amazing new book came out. My Heart is a Chainsaw, um, which we will definitely dig into because it is just a love letter to slasher movies. It is just amazing. Did you know that there is a letterbox that somebody has made that literally lists every horror movie that is referenced in your book? It's 155. Yeah, there, there's now two of those. Somebody else made another one. I think they don't have the same movies, so they mu- there must be like more than 155. I don't know. It's a oh, cult. wow. I think you should uh, go to the list before reading the book. Buy the book. <laughs> but you have to watch all of them before reading the book, yeah. just in case there's any spoilers. <laughs> yeah. And then we give an honorary PhD in horror. Oh, you deserve oh, that. Yeah. I have to like, I did the audio book while I was driving because I have like an hour and a half commute to USC every day. So I was doing the audio book and there were definitely times that I was like pulling out a pen and like scribbling <laughs> on the five in Los Angeles, writing down some of the titles that I had never seen before that I was like, holy shit, this is 
total slasher deep cut. Um, plus, it made me want to rewatch Mortuary. Um, so, but I want to go like way, way back. Like, when did you first start writing? Because you have already got 22 books under your belt. Like, how, when did you start writing? You know, I think I've, I think I've got closer to 30 now. Oh but, my gosh. Um, but when did I start? My first story was when I was 19 years old. I didn't start until then. I wrote a lot of, um, a lot of lies in high school, but they were all, they were all, um, I would write these big grand six page apology letters to girls and fold them three times and put them under a windshield wiper so that I could go out with them again on Saturday. Cause whatever I done on Friday made them mad. So I had, oh, to, damn. It, if I, if I could write a good enough story, then they would go out with me again. So it did it out. work? It worked. Yeah. I could, I could, I got, I got to where I could make it work where I could write a good enough story about two swans who, drift apart but come back together all that stuff you know and- <laughs> <laughs> that's just so how Stephen you've- King started <laughs> <laughs> trying to get dates yeah. um so you first wrote your first horror story at 19 do you still have yeah. it I do yeah I think it might be posted on my site somewhere it's called the gift and it's about a girl uh, who wakes up in the ICU unit and she's been in a car wreck and her boyfriend who died in the wreck is riding on the outside of the window. It's wintertime, so it's kind of frosty. He's riding on the outside of the glass. It's a ghost story. It's not terribly scary, I don't think. Mm. Ooh, that's still a cool concept. So <laughs> how, when did you kind of start doing it regularly? Because that's what I've discovered. Like, that's when it, you become yeah. a writer is when you start kind of practicing it like you would practice basketball or any other craft, yeah. like where it becomes a daily thing. That that was the that was the moment for me when I started. Um, I wrote that actually in an ICU. I was there for someone else for three days and three nights, and um, that's why the story is set in the ICU. I came back to my composition two classroom, and I didn't have the personal essay I was supposed to have written. I'd missed two classes, and so I kind of shrugged and pulled my spiral out and tore that story out and handed it. I'd handwritten it and gave it to my instructor and said this proves I was doing something. Maybe I can get partial credit. And she liked it enough that she typed it up and entered it in a contest. And I won the contest. I got $50 and that blew my mind that I could make, that I could make money off of lies, you know? And so I just kept doing it. I just kept entering contests and submitting and getting published and it was off to the races. Was that the first real creative encouragement you'd had from an adult in that kind of world? Or did, did you get that in your family life or what was that path like? Oh yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, no, I didn't grow up in a, a reading family and my community in West Texas, it was all farming and oil field workers. And so I always got made fun of for, I always have like a Mickey Splane book hanging out of my pocket or a Conan the Barbarian book, you know, mm-hmm. um, and people would always, you know, make fun of me. And then when I went to college and got to be a philosophy major, I'd come home for the summers and people would say, Hey, you're going to work at the philosophy mines when you get out. What are you gonna do? <laughs> you know? That definitely sounds like where I grew up. That's the kind of gag. Me too. No, mine was all coal mining area and then even just farming. And yeah, Yeah. it was always, what are you going to do with that theater and film degree? So yeah. Yeah. 30 books later, motherfuckers. (laughs) So talk about writing the first full length novel, because I've always discovered that that's like a big step for people. Like when you actually sit down and say, okay, I'm doing 250 pages now. Yeah, um, it is. We, we come up through through writing programs, practicing short stories. And so when you are told to write a novel, you're just kind of pushed out into the deep end and you're told to do it. And it is scary because you don't know how to swim in those waters. What happened to me was I was at a party at FSU. I went to I was in Tallahassee. I went to Florida State University for my PhD. 
my dissertation director was Janet Burway, who wrote all the writing fiction books and a lot of other books. Mm -hmm. And she had a high powered editor, um, Janet Silver at Houghton Mifflin, I think. And so the three of us were talking and then my mentor, Janet Burway, doing that thing mentors do. She says, y'all two talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to go over here. And she leaves me like in the headlights of this amazingly powerful New York City editor. And so I had this like out of body experience and I hear myself telling her about this novel I have. And at the end of it, which went on for like five minutes, she says, hey, that sounds great. Why don't you send that to me on Monday? And I said, you know, wow. Um, uh, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to need a, a couple of weeks to polish it. I want to make sure it's right. And she said, hey, whenever, whenever you get it ready, that's good for me. And so I went home about three that morning and I started that novel. You know? <laughs> and, that no <laughs> and that novel became a dissertation. I had no idea how to write a novel. So what a novel is, is you write like 10 or 12 pages and you hit a wall. And like nowadays you cast about on social media and try to affect some tragic romantic pose. Oh, writing is hard and all that stuff. But back in, this would have been what, 98, I guess, 97. Back then you didn't have the, the choice to, to go on Twitter and put it on to 280 characters or whatever. So, and I didn't have time anyway, I was on a fast deadline. So every time I hit that 10 or 12 page wall, I just reached in my head pulled out a piece of my life, put it up, put it on the page and change the names. And so that my first novel is really weirdly um, naked or autobiographical or something. Cause there's all these pieces of my life in it. But the trick is I got through that novel and it got published and won some awards. And because it worked out, that became my training for how to write novels. So every one of my novels is like that. It's always got disguised scenes from my life. And I'm, Wow. Oh my. So how, um, talk a little bit about your idea process. Like how do you log ideas? Most writers I know have like very specific ways that they keep track of every like little kernel that pops into their brain throughout the day. Um, you know, I wish I had a system. Um, I have scraps of paper that like float around me and behind me. And I, I write, I love it in the summer because in the summer I wear shorts and I can take notes by just pulling my shorts up on my right thigh and writing on my thigh. And then it's hidden when I stand up, you know? So I, I take a lot, of notes, a lot of notes on my leg, on the back of my hand. Um, but since smartphones, I guess I use a notes app some too. One thing I've found though, being a writer is you have to just, um, you have to like come to terms with the fact that, if you're supposed to pick somebody up from the airport at four o'clock and you're driving there at three 30 and something flashes in your brain, then you're okay to pull over in the ditch and write for a while and be 30 minutes late picking those people up. You know, <laughs> it's, better, it's better to get something done on the page than it is to have people happy with you. I think. Well, if so, you're talking about the kind of thinly disguised uh, versions of you that exist in your yeah. work, which I think is totally normal. I think we all do elements of that, right? Um, sometimes yeah. we switch the gender or whatever we do. Uh, so talk, let's talk a little bit about Jade because, you know, yeah. for me, this was a really easy to devour book for obvious reasons, right? I feel like uh, we could probably identify a lot, weirdly enough, if we've ever felt like outcasts, all horror fans were probably yeah. outcasts in some way in their lives, whatever that means to them. But also this kind of the world she lives in the way she identifies with everything around her through the veil of horror films through the veil, especially yeah. of slasher films in this one, how much of this is coming, you know, from some of your experiences. Cause also one, one thing that really kind of touched me about her was this idea that her life and circumstances and maybe race and other things mm -hmm. makes her feel, and she is also, you know, survivor of, um, I won't, spoil what's in the story but she doesn't believe at all not even with a colonel that she could ever be the final girl there's nothing in yeah. her past would make her personally believe that her self-worth 
is worthy of being that character. She's some other character in her own narrative, which is kind of heartbreaking in itself, right? That in your own story, you're not the hero or heroine. Uh, so I don't know how much of that is, can, you know, is personal to you. Man, a lot of it's personal. You know, Jade is a custodian after hours, after school hours at her high school and at the elementary in her town, Proofrock. I was also a janitor in high school for for a while, and she's the only um, native in Proofrock. And growing up in West Texas, I was the only Indian for miles and miles around, except for when my dad was coming through town. Mm. And um, I also, I got hooked into slashers. Jade got hooked in sixth grade. I got hooked in eighth grade. I guess my first slasher experience was really 78, but I got hooked, one? hooked hard. Yeah. Uh, was- it was Halloween, but it, I didn't see Halloween. That was the trick. What, what, I guess this is a little bit of the story, but um, um, my grandmother, well, we all live way out in the country, but my grandmother lived especially far out in the country. Like you could stand on her porch and not see a light for as far as you look, just blackness. And way on the edge of her property, she had 10 acres. There was a little camper, a camper trailer. My uncle, who was in high school, had just married his girlfriend in high school. They were living in that camper. And when I was I was six years old then, I thought they were the they were titans in my universe. They were the most amazing people. They dressed cool. Their hair was cool. Everything they said was cool. You know how it is when you're a kid looking up to your uncles who are not that much older than you. And so one night I'm at my grandma's. I'm sleeping on the floor. It's probably three in the morning, two in the morning. And there comes a knock on the door. And I get up. I'm wrapped in my blanket. It's November. And I huddle at the door and I open it and it's my aunt and uncle there in a single blanket. And um, they say, Hey Stevie, can we come sleep on the floor with you? And I said, I said, yeah, sure. But, 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 um, but why, why do you want to sleep in my place? You got your own trailer out there. And they said, we just went to town and saw Halloween and we can't sleep in our place anymore. <laughs> <laughs> They're the oh my gosh. Guys. I like it. <laughs> and I, I distinctly remember stepping to the side and holding the screen door open for them and looking out into that blackness and thinking, what can make these amazing, beautiful Titan giants have to come sleep on the cold floor with me. And that's the first time that I sensed Michael Myers. I feel like, you know, how long was it until you saw that film? after that man it was probably i probably saw it in eighth grade in eighth grade i was living down around down outside austin texas and i got to run in with a group of um people kids my age who knew someone at the video store i don't remember who who was a brother or a cousin anyways if we showed up right after school on a friday they would let us just scoop up six or eight slasher videos Mm -hmm. videotapes and if we had them back by opening on Saturday, then we didn't have to pay for them because they didn't have to officially check them out. It was some weirdness in the system. I don't know. And and so we we cycled through all the, you know, Freddie, Michael, Jason, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all those just every Friday night. And we'd watch the same ones over and over and over again. And one of my friend's dad, my, we'd watch them in my friend's garage. He lived out in the trees and I'm kind of, it's kind of, it's not swampy, but it's definitely wet in Austin. And he had a separate garage junky garage his dad had put an old ratty couch couch and a 13 inch tv in there and a vcr for us just to keep us out of his hair probably (laughs) (laughs) and um that's where that's where we'd have these slasher marathons and you know usually about two or three in the morning he would get deep enough into his case of beer that he would put on his fake freddy glove (laughs) and come come to the garage and scratch his plastic claws down that metal door and that would scare us so completely and we would blast out of the side of that garage and run for the creek and if we could make it into the water, we were safe. I don't know why that was a rule. That's not a very good rule, really. <laughs> but, 
Well, that relates um, to your story. That relates to Jade, right? The, it does. The water yeah. is the safety oh, spot. The water is totally the safety. Does. I think we yeah. just had a breakthrough in the city. Because all I'm thinking is that's how you get ticks, sir. That is where ticks yeah. are. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. So, Stephen, ticks. tell me more about your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to the dreams. <laughs> we are making progress here. <laughs> I never thought about that. That is so neat. It's that funny that wild. it's funny that two people with a PhD never thought of this. <laughs> but one guy who's watched a bunch of junky movies comes along with his muffa. With his muffa. Uh, but but that is but those kind of experiences are the ones. I don't think it's just the watching of the movies. It's those weird little sides where somebody scared you, or it was an escape mm-hmm. as a group, or or the bonding with friends. Yeah. It was such a strong part of all of our. Like oh, DNA. Yeah. It's it's why we're all here. There's no other reason we're all talking about this right now than that period, so. that eighth grade yeah. period is such a good I, I remember it around that exact age as well. So mm-hmm. what were some so. of the the weird ones that you saw that kind of stuck with you? Not the Freddies and the Jasons, the what the fuck is this? And then you later realize it's burial ground or things like that. Yeah, you know, one of them might have been Girls Night Out. Because when oh, I watched that two or three years ago, I was like, uh, it was like a weirdly deja vu experience, you know, cause I kind of knew vaguely what was going to happen. You know how it is when you get mm-hmm. to a movie that you saw and, and, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. And I, I think girls night out is probably one. And I bet girls the one with the bear suit. Girls yeah, night. It is yeah, a that, bear that, suit that, that is falls. weird. That is a weird. Yeah. So <laughs> that's weird one movie. of the titles that you mentioned in chainsaw that yeah. I literally jotted down while driving. <laughs> I was like, I've never seen this movie. So <laughs> But I, I love that feeling too, like because especially because of the VHS era when we would go into those video stores for hours and look at all the mm-hmm. covers. Sometimes you felt like because you'd seen the cover so many times that you'd seen it, and then years later you watch it and go, "I have never seen this movie." <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, I, I I still have one. I remember I used to always see it on the shelf, and I was always too scared to get it. The Unholy. I've never oh, yeah. seen mm-hmm. the Unholy. Oh, I like Unholy. I like this. Fun. It's sleazy. Yeah. It's super sleazy fun. All right. All right. Yeah. But I also had the opposite where there were some where the cover would fool me and I'd rent it mm-hmm. like five times. Like Headless Eyes did that to me. I probably rented Headless Eyes at least yeah. four or five times. Body Shop as well. And every single time I'd go, oh, I saw this. It wasn't that good the first mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. But I'd keep renting it because of that box cover. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we had a, we lived out in the country. We had a gas station like five miles down the road and it had a wall of like, I don't know, 40 videotapes. And so some Friday nights when I was 13 or so, my mother would drive me down and say, go inside and get us two tapes for tonight for me and my brothers and I'd go in and every single time she sent me in, I came out with American Ninja and um, American Ninja. And there was another, Oh, American Anthem. That's what it was. American Mm -hmm. Anthem and American Ninja because they were in the A's and I'd see them right, right at the first. I think, well, those are good. So I'd get those two. And so I've got those two movies memorized pretty much. (laughs) He just know he has a Michael Dudikoff poster (laughs) behind his head right now (laughs) from one of those Guiana posters that he got made personally for himself. Of Dudikoff. He's the only one with the Dudikoff poster. So I'm really ruining your reputation right now. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned the gas station because I have tried to explain this to people on the show before that in my hometown, it was a while before we got like a video store, but you could rent mm-hmm. movies. It started out at what they called CB's Corner, which was our little like, um, like our gas station. You know, you went there to buy bait and beer and they also had two aisles of videotapes and then they opened up a 7-Eleven and the 7-Eleven rented videotapes tapes for a while until yeah. we got on track video which was like our big one for a stretch um yeah. but yeah i remember gas station videotapes that was a treat man and, beer and bait and videos yeah. 
I know. And sometimes in the early days, you'd have to rent the VCR too, and it'd be in that mm-hmm. huge plastic rounded capsule. You know, yeah. fun. isn't that wild that we used to rent the actual VCR? I remember doing that. It's just a, it's a crazy thing that they trusted people with VCR machines. You know, it's so bizarre. Yeah. My parents had that was like this big deal in my family. We got one of the very first VCRs, and it was this huge, massive deal. Like the neighbors came over to see it. It was a Christmas present to, from my dad to my mom, and the neighbors all came over to look at it. And the thing was like the size of a fucking microwave. And when the tapes ejected, the entire top lifted off. The entire top of the machine came up and you put the tape in and then you lowered it. And to watch a tape, to rewind a tape took longer than actually watching it. So we also had a little Corvette shaped rewinder that sat next to it. Um, And yeah, my parents did not get rid of that VCR until probably five years ago. Um, It took a long time. (laughs) Yeah, I I do remember those top loaders were super weird. Um, What about like, you know, so representation on screen is a really interesting thing. Like for me, I've I've told the story before, but like um, mostly growing up in New Zealand, right? Like it wasn't until I saw Bad Taste that it kind of like it just confused me when I suddenly is the accents were very strong and the acting was very amateur, but it, but it, after a while I was like, Oh, that's us. I didn't know we could be in movies. And I know that it might be sound different, but it it was Mm -hmm. very much a process that my brain initially rejected to be honest, and then Mm -hmm. came around to. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, obviously Jade is super isolated and you mentioned yourself that you were one Mm -hmm. of the sole native Americans where you were raised. Do you remember the first time seeing, especially in horror, like the representation? Obviously, probably largely misrepresentation. If we're looking, at horror, especially, especially horror. if we're looking at seventies horror, I, I, oh god, lots of, lots of burial grounds, uh, <laughs> especially not in Poltergeist. That's the <laughs> misnomer number. But do you remember the first time you yeah. would have seen a horror film where you're like, oh, this, this is like a native story that, and, mm-hmm. and or, or if you're more critical, you know, mm-hmm. when you're young on those kind of films, I'm curious. No, I mean, as far as like the movies we're talking about, yeah, you're right. The it's all some version of burial ground or scalps. You know, I guess those are the same thing. Um, Twisted Nightmare, the caretaker in Twisted Nightmare, is supposed to be native. I don't, I don't know who he is really. And if you remember, there's some Indians in Sweet Sixteen. Mm-hmm. Sweet Sixteen is the one, the only, the main one that came to mind because yeah. uh, they're being used as scapegoats. Yeah, in one of the main yeah. stories lines, but that's actually it's a decent movie, actually. Yeah, no, it is. It's yeah. all right. I agree. But um, to tell you the truth, the 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 native that I took as a super role model from a horror movie was um Billy Soul from Predator. You know, uh, yeah. because, nice. Um, okay. Yeah, because he 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 finally just like throws his stuff down and says, you know, we're t- we're making a stand right here. You know, and um, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die my way. And um. And then the predator respects him enough that he keeps his head, you know, because the predator doesn't keep everybody's head as a trophy, but he, res- he respects Billy's soul, you know. Um, but it. there's also, also before that, though, I had seen Edward James almost mm. be native in Wolfen. Yeah, you know? which, mm-hmm. which he's yeah. got that scene on the bridge that mm-hmm. is terrifying because it just the perspective mm-hmm. of the way it's shot and everything is. Yeah, I remember yeah. Th- seeing it again recently and going, oh, he's playing Nate. Like, obviously, he's, you know, he, yeah. a, a huge yeah. in the Latinx yeah. community, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but then he, if I remember correctly, he he narrates or voices over one of the big native documentaries. And oh. so I was really confused, man. I was like, yeah, I don't know. Wow. That is wild. <laughs> but as long, I guess, as long as it's respectful and he's like, and he's an awesome yeah. actor, you can, you can get yeah. back of it. Yeah. And he's, he's got that great voice, too. Yeah. But um, to tell you the truth, growing up not seeing yourself on screen, what you do is you abduct people into your tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm Conan the Barbarian. I made him be honorary Blackfeet because mm-hmm. he's a good dude to have on your side, you know? Um, <laughs> 
John McClane, I decided he was probably native too because he has those guerrilla tactics and he's funny, you know. Um, so follow-up question, do you want the rest of Bruce Willis recently or are you going to pass? <laughs> <laughs> or, or have you yeah, returned yeah. him to the other tribe? <laughs> you don't want him back, man. <laughs> back yeah. when you learned lines, yeah. you liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, now that y'all mentioned it, the first native I ever saw in a movie was Charles Bronson in White Buffalo. Oh, you know? I and I, I'm, I'm a big White Buffalo fan. I won't, I won't hear anything <laughs> negative about it. I think it's such a wild the creature. is terrifying. When he's running at you, it's like, I don't, I don't care if it if it's, uh, should be canceled or not. I'm going to stand by White Buffalo. <laughs> I have to say the same, like Billy Jack is one of those where like, yeah, it yeah. should be canceled. I know, but yeah. I, I have such like, I just, I have an, I love that movie. And oh, I know it's yeah. not right. No, but yeah. Billy, Billy Jack's amazing. He's going to, He's going to kick you and there's nothing you can do about yeah. it, you know? <laughs> no, I, I have a, a weird love-hate with Billy Jack, man. <laughs> so. Well, you know, who, who, who I put up on a, on a pedestal was um, Chavez y Chavez from Young Guns. You know, he oh, was yeah. my hero for the yeah. longest time. Yeah. 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 Even though Young Guns 2 is better. But <laughs> yeah. I really... I had to to go back to talking about Jade because, um, well, I mean, in general, you always have these kind of flawed protagonists, which are great and make for, for you know, immensely better storytelling. We saw that in Only Good Indians, um, which was my pandemic, by the way, was that book and going, holy shit, this is brilliant. This has got me through. <laughs> Um, and, and talking with people online about that book. Um, but yeah, that one's got flawed protagonists, um, uh, several of them. And this one, like seeing Jade, but she ultimately becomes the final girl and she's just so badass and has so much anger in her, which we don't necessarily, she starts with it. And that is something kind of unique to final girls. And I really wanted to kind of hear your take on final girls just because she, is one, but she's also yeah. simultaneously kind of working against it. And she's yeah. analyzing them constantly, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is really yeah. cool. Because that's who I identified growing up was I only had the final girls, which was always complex because that it was either like, mm. I take my top off. I don't understand. Yeah. I can be badass, yeah. but I have to have all my friends dead to get to that point. Like it was just yeah. such like yeah. a muddy um, place to find role models. I was all Ripley because yeah. she was just like badass and cold from the beginning. But yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear your take on final girls. Yeah, you're right. Ripley, Ripley's badass from the beginning, and so mm -hmm. is um, Aaron. And you're next. Those are two, two of the two of the final girls who are just they start out at ten. You know, they're yeah. ready to go. Well, I, yeah, um, I've, actually, I saw Alien recently, and what you yeah. guys are saying is so dead on. She, what's so interesting about now is that whole listen to woman thing. As soon as she mm -hmm. speaks, the first things out of her mouth that we can't go out there. We're not going to do this. And everyone, all the guys push her aside and they go out and do it. So all the events would have been <laughs> saved. Completely she, mitigated had, had it not been for her. Which I didn't no. notice that before. Yeah, no, you're no, totally but, right. But um, yeah, talking Final Girls, like, I, you know, I mean, hopefully you can tell that I love the slasher. I live inside the slasher. It's kind of my religion. But that doesn't mean I think it's perfect. You know, I think um, since like Jess Bradford and Black Christmas and Laurie Strode and Halloween, the Final Girl has through all the instant instantiations of her we've seen, um, she's become this um, unattainable ideal. She's impossibly beautiful, impossibly smart. She's Letha Mondrag in, in My Heart is a Chainsaw, this perfect, mm -hmm. perfect thing. And I don't think that's the function of a final girl in stories. I think the final girl is supposed to be someone that uh, someone, an audience member, a reader can see her on screen and say, that's me. I can be that girl. You know, I can push back against bullies. I can fight. I can insist on my own life. And so if I have a project in my heart as a chainsaw, it's probably to um, 
try to push back against that ideal and also establish that a final girl is not on the outside. A final girl is who you are on the inside, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that's, that's where I finally wanted to get with, with my hugger's a chainsaw. I like, I think you had one line where you were talking about how they symbolize hope. Mm-hmm. And um, that really hit me. Like I read that line a couple of times where I was like that, yeah. that I like that it is the symbol of, you know, that evil is not going to prevail. Yeah. Final girls are the vessel we keep our hope in. That's it. That's why I love the idea of self-worth being part of this story. Like mm-hmm. that this person based on their circumstances, even though they're an expert on the, the genre and they're expert on final girls, it just doesn't even occur to them that they would ever be worthy of this status until the events push them in that direction. And I think that that is where I, I do feel you're doing that work because I think somebody reading it might feel the same reading a story and suddenly realizing, oh, I guess if you're at the center of it, there's, there's that chance you, you are the center of your story, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's what I so hope I, I would. My dream is for a 12 or 13 year old girl out there to find my heart as a chainsaw and feel empowered by it. That's that would be my dream. Like that's all I need for success in this book, you know? I love how much a troublemaker she is too. So I have to ask how yeah. much, were you in a lot of trouble when you're young or, or is that different? I was, no, I was in so much trouble. I got kicked out of a whole, whole lot of schools. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it gives me hope for my son who has as well. So. Yeah. No, wait, you have yeah. kids, correct? Do they ever, do they ever make appearances in the stories as well? Well, you know, my daughter was 17 at the time I was writing Jade. So yeah, there's probably some bleed over there. Now, were there, because, uh, okay, so, so people who don't know, we, we're going to avoid big spoilers, but each chapter heading mm-hmm. is a different slasher movie. And I think I was halfway through where I started writing to you going, oh, I'm loving how obscure some of these are getting. Once you go Silent Rage, <laughs> there's no coming back from Silent Rage. <laughs> Once Chuck Norris uh, <laughs> is making a cameo. Um, but were there any slashers you hadn't seen that you watched during the writing? Like, were there new discoveries? Yeah. I always want to hear about there new was. discoveries. You know, the um, the one that I most clearly remember watching because I wanted to use it as a chapter title was Don't Go in the Woods. Oh, yeah. I got the vinegar, I got the vinegar syndrome of that and watched it. Oh, nice. I only just watched that awesome. uh, about a week ago. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> probably, that, that's probably actually a little too much. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what? It's a slasher <laughs> movie for sure. <laughs> That's about all I can really. Uh, yeah, I think it's on a double feature at the New Biv with "Don't Go in the House," which I love. Yeah, which isn't really yeah. a slasher movie, right? It's a different thing. Yeah, but, but then yeah. "Don't Go in the Woods," yeah. and I was just like, yeah, I guess it's hitting all the tropes, but that's about it. It's technically a slasher. You know? Yeah, I have seen that one once, and is that yeah. an SOV? No, uh, no, it's before no? that. It's okay. On, yeah. I'm confusing it with it. I'm confusing it with "Don't Go in the Basement." Um, so it feels to me like if an alien this. came here. And this was their version of what is a slasher film. This is like the Wikipedia version. <laughs> don't go. The- yes, there's people in the woods talking, and a lot of it's dubbed, and it really throws you. So I was convinced watching it, it must have been made in Denmark and then dubbed into American, but it wasn't. It was just made in America, <laughs> so it really threw me off. I was like, okay. Uh, but you know, yeah. you know, talking talk Silent Rage, the version of Silent Rage I always want, and y'all correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I remember reading somewhere at some time that they considered putting Michael Myers like walking through the background of the lab because the idea was that he came from the same lab that this killer came from, you know? Oh, right. I, I like that. Oh, it's like Michael Myers averse. That's great. Yeah. 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 I, that I haven't, oh my haven't God. heard before. Yeah. I have um, more questions about craft. So I'm going to yes. double back real quick um, mm-hmm. because I know that's, it's just something we don't get a lot of writers like novel writers on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. I've interviewed Paul Tremblay before mm-hmm. and I'm always so inspired by craft. So 
once you have an idea, do you outline? Do you just jump right in and kind of write yourself into a corner and then double mm -hmm. back? Like, what is your mm -hmm. process from, okay, I think I have something here to, you know, actually writing it? I just jump in like a, a, the way I think about, you know, novels are I just stand around in my head in the darkness and there's big things wishing past me, running past, thundering past. And every once in a while, one of them will run close enough that if I time my steps right, I can jump and hold on to its tail. And I hold on and it drags me through fences across roads. And four or five weeks later, I let go and I'm all torn up and thrashed. And I have something like a novel and I can go back and revise it. But I never have any idea where it's going. With My Heart is a Chainsaw, I had no idea in the world where it was going. I just wrote the sequel. I had no idea where it was going. Um, I just, what I like to do is challenge myself. You said write yourself in the corners, and that's exactly what mm -hmm. I do. I write myself yeah. in the corner, corner after corner, and I think, well, it has to end here because I can't think of any way out. But then I have to write myself out. I have to use my pen to carve a new hole in the story and go somewhere. And I think that makes it hopefully more interesting for the reader. You know, um, I've never, I've never been able to outline, I've, I've written a lot of outlines for novels, but I never write those novels because it's boring. Why would I want to write a novel? I've already figured out, you know, <laughs> you know, I always use the term, write yourself into a corner because um, one of the very earliest interviews I did for Fangoria was Larry Cohen. And when I was asking him about his writing craft, cause I mean, he's a great filmmaker, but mm. man, that, he could write screenplays. Um, and I remember him telling me that that was his technique is he, he wouldn't outline. He had no idea where it was going to go. He would just sit down and start writing and he'd write himself into a corner and then he'd write himself out of it. And then that's what made good screenplays. Yeah. And so I'm always like, that gives me anxiety to think about. And I'm so inspired <laughs> by people who can do that. Just be like, I don't know where this is going. I'm doing it. I'm so, I just, my brain would freak out. Um, so you, did you seriously just say it takes you four to five weeks to write a first draft? Yeah. Well, actually the sequel to Chainsaw took me, um, I think it took me 10, 10 weeks and it's the same size as Chainsaw, but it took me 10 weeks because I had to take two weeks off to do some script work, which kind of bummed me out because I wanted to get it done in two months. But um, when you say yeah, sequel, like, do you mean like a Jade, direct Jade sequel? Character yes. sequel? Oh, cool. Yes. Yes. I hadn't heard about it. We that. won't ask. I know, I know you're probably forbidden from uh, answering yeah, too yeah. many questions about yeah. it, but that's yeah. awesome. Oh, no one's listening to that. It's just the three of us. There's no one. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. This is offline. They left, during, they left during the PhD dissertation <laughs> combo at the top. Oh, we're good. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, for the longest time, it took me about between four and six weeks to write a novel. That, that's been, but it's not because like I'm a, I mean, I am a really fast typist, but it's not, it's, it's no special ability I have. It's that when I'm writing a piece, I have to invest in it so completely emotionally, intellectually that I lose the line between story and not story. And so mm -hmm. I'm living in this, this fake space in the middle where I don't know what's real. I don't know if what's going to walk around the corner, if it's going to be a character I made up or it's going to be somebody I know or somebody I know who I disguised in the book, you know? Um, and so I write fast just to get through that tunnel. Like writing novels is a tunnel. I just run through it as mm -hmm. fast as I can because I want to get back to where my feet are on real ground, you know? Is, is do that you do it like in – oh, I was going to say, do you treat writing like a nine-to-five or is this like you're doing benders at like 3 a.m. and things like that? You know, um, I, would, I, I do consider myself a little bit of a binge writer. I mean, I don't mind being on a schedule either. That, that doesn't bug me. But just because, you know, the, the pressures and responsibilities of life, sometimes for five days, I can't get to a keyboard to get anything down. And then I'll spend three days doing nothing but writing. So, yeah. Has the, uh, yeah. you were talking about like, uh, you know, the thin veil of 
people, yeah. yourself, in your stories. Has it ever been an issue that somebody's seen too much of themselves? I only bring it up because I thought I thought this year one of the other more interesting things I read or listened to was the Brett Easton yeah. Ellis. He, I guess he was kind of speaking his new novel throughout this whole yeah. year on his yeah. thing. And, and it was so close to real people that a lot of people were, you know, contacting mm-hmm. him. And he was kind of talking about, there's a lot of trauma there, I guess. <laughs> so I was just curious about <laughs> yeah. that process. Yeah, no, I, I listened to the shards as well. I listened to it because you mentioned it. And then uh, I got, I got into it probably in July. So I was able to just jam through it really quickly. Me too. I, I was pretty late too. Like I just did yeah, the same. Yeah. Oh my God, I have to listen, you guys. I, when Elric tells me, I'm like, I'll get there. But now I think this is the second get because Nick Antosco is oh, talking yeah, about it as yeah. well. And mm-hmm. now, you, I'm, okay, fine. I have to fucking yeah. listen. It's partially because it was kind of stream of consciousy, not the writing. The writing was obviously mm-hmm. very, but the way he would deliver it. And then in these episodes, it was just a unique way of, you know, hearing a story. Yeah. No, it was, it was a really cool delivery. And he's, he did that in Leonard Park, too. And he did oh, really yeah. well really well in Leonard Park. Um, yeah, that's good but, you know, I, I'm probably more in the Quentin Tarantino camp. I know you talked to him, Elric, on some other show. I yeah, Pure Cinema. Show it was. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and he was saying he didn't buy it, you know, because yeah, I, I, com- I was completely with the Shards until Chapter 14. Yeah. And in Chapter 14, Matt's dad... Um, like talks shows Brett photos of a crime scene that you would never show a high school kid. And I was like, come on, you know, because when you're doing a first person thing, you have to come up with all these um, back bends to get the point of view character into the action, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where it starts for me, where he starts falsely placing the Brett Easton Ellis persona in the thick of things where a kid wouldn't be in the thick of things. And it happens a few, like when the, the aunt of one of the possible antagonists sits him down and lays all this exposition on him. There's a lot, there's a lot of fake stuff in there, but I love Brett, East, Brett Easton Ellis's um, prose so, so much. Yeah. I will do, I'll listen to him do. It, it's the description. Yeah. He, he's very, the certain description, but I will say with that, uh, like, I, I wonder about that. I, I, there are other things that give me pause. Some of the yeah, violent moments, yeah, some of the movie-ish yeah. moments, but some of the yeah. adult and young person, because of Beverly Hills in the eighties, some of that I wonder. I, I, some of it I think is about a dysfunction that that city and that town mm. kind of has with the divide in the wealthier things. So I, 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 you could be totally right, but those parts didn't yeah. take me out as yeah. much. Maybe also because I've seen yeah. what, what was his first movie um, and book, Lesson Zero. Uh, Lesson Zero. Right? Yeah. That yeah. world feels very like these young people yeah. really pretending to be adults. And yeah, know. yeah. Well, you know, when I read Brady Sinellis, I read it like um, other people read Game of Thrones. You know, it's like total fantasy. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's got these high school seniors with no parents. They drive Porsches. They got endless drugs, no consequences. I'm like, this is not the life I know. <laughs> Wait, know? that wasn't your life in Texas? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I read it the same way. But then when I came to LA and started talking to people uh, about LA in the 80s, everybody was like, oh no, that was, that was pretty close. <laughs> like the whole culture of it it was just cocaine and cars and that was 80s la um which shocked me as well because i had always viewed it as like this fictional interpretation the beverly hills 90210 of the 80s oh yeah no it's the jesse smiley face killers i didn't actually is it worth seeing um, well, Smiley Face Killers, I, I guess Brady Snellis wrote it, and wrote there's it. there's a lot of elements of um, the shards yeah. in Smiley Face Killers, you know, and it feels like um like one is doing promo for the other. You know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, let's let's stay on that because we just kind of started talking about adaptation. But mm-hmm. I'm curious, how interested are you um, in adaptation, like film at ad- being a film mm-hmm. lover? But obviously, these are totally different mediums, and we've seen Stephen mm-hmm. King done brilliantly, and we've seen him done terribly. Everything mm-hmm. in between. How interested are you in the adaptation of some of your novels in the long run? And and how much of a part of that process would you want to be, or do you view it as 
you know, separate thing that somebody else's interpretation, let it, let it go. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm probably of the camp of it. Let like, let somebody else mm. take it and have their own vision. Cause I fear that if I'm too attached, I'm going to be like, well, Jade wouldn't say that, you know, yeah. but Jade might need to say that for the production, you know, mm-hmm. for, cause it's a completely different medium. And it's one that I, of course, you know, I'm not knee deep in, I'm not neck deep in, I'm not really in at all. I mean, I've, I've done scripts and pilots and, and worked in writer's rooms, but I'm not, I'm not like in it like somebody who's going to run a show. But but that yeah, scripts and um and TV development, all that stuff is to the side. I'm talking about especially about because you could do that for sure because you're a writer, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm talking about like your actual novels and then imagining mm-hmm. them a different version of them on a screen. Does that excite you? Like mm-hmm. or or does it only excite you if it's in the right hands? And and here here's my follow up two part question: uh, <laughs> Who would you cast as the director? Mm-hmm. Of one of your uh, uh, film uh, book adaptations, if you. Could. I want to know who Jade was. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Three part question. Uh, yeah, um, um, pe- uh, people on Twitter have been casting Jade as the um, main woman from Reservation Dogs, Jacobs. Yeah. Oh, Devery. yes. Devery. Yeah, Devery Jacobs. Devery yeah. Jacobs. Yeah. I think she could pull. It, I think she could definitely pull it off. You know, mm-hmm. um, but um, I think. Let me think. Casting. So casting like the director. Cast the director of. Like whose vision do you see yeah. like is in line with Who's, your stuff? I think um, I would like to see the Lee Janiak who mm-hmm. did First Street nice. 94 do mm-hmm. Chainsaw. Mm-hmm. I think I think she's got the right like aesthetic for it. Yeah. Know? I agree with that. And actually, I, I talk about it um, earlier in the show that what Fear Street had that I'm missing in a lot of other slashers that mm-hmm. I've watched recently, it was fun. Yeah. Like I was just, it had the same kind of what I remember from the 1980s of it not feeling like I was just watching somebody be tortured. It was fun yeah, um yeah. and it's such a hard thing to establish because you are torturing people for an hour and a half how do you make mm-hmm. it fun and mm-hmm. your street did that like i was just completely involved yeah. the whole time so was i and the you know the the director of features who's been doing that lately is what's his name christopher landon the yeah. mm-hmm. oh my gosh yeah 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 he's had been, him he's been, on yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah, Freaky, Freaky, I thought was just hilarious. Like, I just, it completely worked for me. Like, when it popped up on screen, it, and again, it's all, also the self-referential versions make total mm-hmm. sense now because there isn't much more runway unless mm-hmm. the people telling that story change. And so that's something mm-hmm. that your book is doing, right? You're, you're changing who the protagonist, mm-hmm. who it's being told. And it did feel different because she has a different interpretation. She's not just obsessed by movies. She's obsessed by movies yeah. that don't include her. And and then suddenly yeah. she finds herself at the heart of it, which is pretty awesome, you know. It's- yeah, yeah. Well, she she's she's compelled to um, study scene by scene, frame by frame, rev- like justice fantasies, and she lives a life in which she feels a distinct lack of justice. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Now, um, before we we end this fabulous yeah. interview, I really wanted to ask, um, because we do not get book suggestions on the show as much. Like we are constantly, people on Twitter are constantly showing us movies that they recommend yeah. things that are coming that we need to see. Um, but we don't get book suggestions. And I want to know like yeah. from pandemic to now, like what have you read that has just made you say, Holy shit, this is great. Oh man. I mean, there's a couple of the big horror books from this year have been Chuck Wendig's the book of accidents, which is really amazing. Yeah, and, um, Mm-mm. Grady Grady Hendrix is the final girl support group. So much fun! That yeah, one just yeah. made me smile. Yeah, it's so fun. And you know, more on the indie end, the end, indie end of things. I would say um, 
There's a book called Taste Like Candy by Ivy Tholen, T-H-O-L-E-N. It's a slasher. It's about some high school seniors going on a scavenger hunt after hours at an amusement park. And that's a wonderful setting, of course. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. and really, really good. I was so enthralled by that novel. Um, let's see. Jessica Giss has a slasher called Cirque Berserk, which does a different thing than I've seen done in slashers. Jonathan Rabb has... Um, Camp Ghoul Mountain Massacre Part Four, I think. No, it's just called Camp Ghoul Mountain Part. No, it's Part Six. I, I get I get the V and the I mixed up. Camp Ghoul Mountain Part Six, and there's no Part One through Five. It's That's like, a it's great like, fucking name. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, and this dude knows the slasher inside out, and it's really pleasant to read someone who is so intimate with the genre. You know. That's um, really great. Haley Piper has Benny Rose, the Cannibal King. Really good slasher. It's kind of a novella. Maybe, maybe I don't know what the word count is, but it's a it's a thin novel. Really, really good. Tastes like candy. Is, it sounds interesting. We have the ones. I'm going to write that one down as well. Yeah, um, I'm big. I love novellas because I, like mm-hmm. there was a stretch a year or two ago. It was pre in the long, long ago before the pandemic where I was getting um, novella audiobooks because I could finish them in a day from like to school and back I could I could wrap them up and like I read Husk during that time Mm -hmm. and Crossroads it was a whole bunch that I read during that stretch that were really good yeah Crossroads is really tight I like that a lot right that one was like intense body heart I read that during the pandemic it's great yeah and you know I read I listened to the shards because Elric and and Becca because of you I um read two novels one of us is lying one of us is next and I was so enthralled by those novels Yeah. So one of us, um, and I actually talk about this earlier in the show, one of us is lying actually became a TV show and I watched mm-hmm. it this week. It is on Peacock now. Um, yes. And same thing with, um, cause I loved one of us is lying. I thought it was mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. just a clever, literally like breakfast club yeah. with a killer. Um, yeah. And then they also, one of the other ones, there's someone in the house. Um, yeah, just, I, read, I read that. Yeah. Just became a movie on Netflix. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about yeah. that. Okay, so normally at the end of our show, we do it without our guests usually, but I'm going to make you do it this time. Yeah. So you're going to have to scratch your head. We usually do a section called just called Deep Cut. Uh, I've got one for you, just in case you haven't seen, but first I want to uh, Deep Cut Slasher. What's a slasher that you might want to recommend that is off the beat? I mean, look, already Girls Night Out, you've given us one for, for people, mm-hmm. but is there another one that you like to recommend people who feel like they've seen a lot of stuff? Who are on the hunt what's what and i'm sure one of them is the title from one of your chapters but yeah i think i do mention this one in the novel but i think a lot of people have not seen it simply because it's got ozzy osbourne and gene simmons and you'll probably know which one i'm talking about already <laughs> but the one with sammy kerr trick or treat you know <laughs> people need to watch trick or treat perfect for the right? season <laughs> I love, I have a Sammy Kerr concert t-shirt. That's how big of a dork I am. I love Sammy Kerr so much, man. That movie like spoke to me in 1986. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I mean by fun. Like that was just. Yeah. I I didn't think I was going to like that, to be honest. There was something about like, although she had talked about a lot before, but when I finally saw it, I was like, this is beyond cool. So I was, um, (laughs) I was curious because, you know, the slasher and the giallo are obviously very different, but a a lot of, a lot of elements that cross over have many people sometimes confuse like obviously Argento's a confusion between them because you get a little mm-hmm. bit of both but for- are you gonna make this a stage fright argument no again, no no, right? no I'm not gonna yeah. I'm throw down right now man no, torso I think torso is closer to a slasher I think stage fright's closer yeah. to a slasher but just saying um <clears throat> But there, uh, I was curious, like, A, I, I don't know if you're as interested or if you watch, you know, as many of them, yeah. but there was one I saw this year that we talked about on one of our early, early, um, we do a Patreon version where it's just like 
deep cut type movies. But I saw one that I thought of when I uh, thought of you when I saw it uh, called Eyes of Crystal, and it's I'd never heard of hmm. it. It's a Spanish. It's called Spanish Jalo, but it. The only thing that's more Jalo is the fact that there is a detective investigating, which is different than teen slashers, right? Because we're used to teenage protagonists, which I do prefer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really like cops in movies anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> period, unless it's a crime. Um, but this one's really cool. I think it reminds me a lot of like um, things like uh, uh, Christopher Lambert type, you know, 90s, mm-hmm. things like Night Moves or Resurrection mm-hmm. thing. But it was really well made. And it's like the, there is a killer going around taking, you know, cutting off different pieces from the victims and assembling this kind of doll thing. And it's really messed mm-hmm. up. But I, I just have a feeling that you would dig this movie. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't heard of it till and just stumbled upon it last year and yeah. thought it was super cool. So, well, thank, uh, you. thank you. That's, that sounds like a similar premise to that. Yeah. Oh, you said it. Re- Resurrection. I'm sorry. I was. Yeah. No. It's that's what reminded me of that yeah. vibe. You know, from yeah. that kind of world. Yeah. But this one's Spanish, so it, it was yeah. definitely unique. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's a good. That's a good Giallo title too. But yeah, you're yeah. right. The Giallo and the Slasher. Like you have weird things. Like then you have Lamberto Bava come and make Blade in the Dark, and then you yeah. have John Carpenter write The Eyes of Lower Mars, and one's mm-hmm. a they're like Amer- American doing a giallo and a yeah. Italian trying to do a kind of a slasher thing. Yeah, yeah. it's it's hard to yeah because like Tenebrae it's feels like a slasher, but yeah. it's oh, yeah. obviously got the giallo. You know, it's 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 nice and messy, but uh, I always think it's a good lead in to get people who don't naturally watch that stuff. You know, if to you go back and watch, yeah, because because they yeah. can animate each other. You know. Um, so for my deep cut slasher, yeah. I'm going to go with one that you mentioned in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I assume you're a fan. All the mm-hmm. boys love Mandy Lane. Oh, yeah. um, yes. Just because it did not get nearly enough love. I remember when yeah. that movie first was released. And mm-hmm. I put that in quotes because um, I was working at Fango at the time. And we did a screening of it in New York mm-hmm. City. And it was another fucking like five years before the studio, before I yep. think it was Weinstein actually put it mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I mean, like Amber Heard is a teen in it and she was mm-hmm. no longer a teen by the time the mm-hmm. movie came out. And I loved it cause it's a deceptive, it's a deceptive slasher. I'll say like, yeah, when you think yeah. you're watching one thing and then it reverses itself and it's so clever and so small, but so well done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's deceptive in the same way. Like, um, what is it? Edge of the Axe is or yep. Cherry, Cherry, not Cherry Falls. Um, I like Cherry Falls. One. <laughs> Wolf Creek, not Wolf Creek. Um, like bon Jumbo Jovi? Which one's No, he? yeah, John Bon Jovi. What's that one? <laughs> Cry, Cry Wolf. That's what it is. Cry, Cry Wolf. Wolf. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I don't remember liking that one at the time, but there are some movies yeah. that I saw tail end of the 90s, early 2000s, where I was yeah. not mm-hmm. into, yeah. like I kind of wasn't into that thing post scream as much because i just got burned out but there some of those when you rewatch them now like i just rewatched urban legend final cut and i loved it and i didn't expect yeah. to love it because i thought it was stupid <laughs> when i was in film school yeah, i was like yeah. this is bullshit let's watch bergman yeah. and i'm like no yeah. forget bergman yeah. final cut yeah well, yeah no all the boys uh, yeah. Yeah, all the boys love yeah. mandy lane it's beautiful yeah. i love that like that like gold tint they put over everything it's movie. got this it's, beautiful sun aesthetic like it's got this yeah. it's just like a tungsten that feels like the whole movie's just baked in sun um mm-hmm. and speaking of uh screen adaptations jonathan mm-hmm. levine who directed that is um mm-hmm. doing one of my other favorite films from the pandemic nine perfect strangers he's just been brought on as the director for that one oh, or nice. five perfect strangers five yeah. five right. nine Nine Perfect Strangers. I was right. right. Don't second guess yourself. Um, but yeah, he's doing that one. The other one that I'll throw at you guys is, um, and this is like super deep cut, Little Aaron Merriweather. Have either of you guys seen this? No. 2003. Um, this is super, super deep cut from 2003. Really small. 
it's kind of an interesting little red riding hood ish story. It's set in a new England town and it is just a really kind of clever, super indie slasher with a really great score for, for hmm. like a really small indie movie. It's worth hmm. the hunt. Little right. Aaron Merriweather. That's, okay. that's good. Thank you very yeah. much. So you know, and the, and the, the, um, all the boys love Mandy Lane people. They were for a while. They were trying to make one of my books into a feature, Demon Theory, and oh, it, really? it, 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 fell, it fell apart. But um, I, I was so in love with Mandy Lane back then that I was like, "Y'all can just have it, you know? Mm. <laughs> just, just please do it." Warm Bodies, his film Warm Bodies was really good yeah. as well. Yeah. I always look at that yeah. as like it's it, it's a nice little romantic zombie cross, which we don't yeah. see a lot. So yeah, we don't. And what have you been watching recently? Like, what has just really kind of besides yeah. Fourth Street um, has yeah. just lit you up? You know, the just last night I finished Midnight Mass, and once again, Mike Flanagan just blows me away. You know yeah. that that the yeah. last two episodes of that just I was like, yeah. I was like, this is his best work, and I wasn't expecting really that going is. into it. It just blew yeah. me away emotionally. Yeah, uh, me too. He's and that's what I'm so fascinated with with his um, television series is that he's able to um, deliver all the horror goods, but he also always has an emotional through line. And I think a lot of people don't have that emotional through line, but he always, I think he, he makes that the most important thing and then he drapes everything else across it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I think maybe that's learned from King because King yeah. is the master yeah. at it. Right. And he always did it. Yeah, yeah. he is. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, you know what, for me, because you're, you know, more than one of us, you're the ultimate one of us. Uh, I want you to feel like you can come back to talk horror on any topic. It doesn't have to be just when you have a book drop. You just right. DM us. You name a subgenre you that you've always wanted to deep dive on, and you are welcome back yeah. anytime as honorary co-host. Yeah, we're done. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a professor as well, and I have a class on werewolves, a class on zombies, a class oh, on haunted houses, a class on slashers. So I've got deep dives on all that stuff. What Holy is shit, man! They barely <laughs> like I get to teach my horror class, and I have to cover, and it is the only horror class at mm. USC, and I cover every single thing and it is both history and production so wow. i have to wedge all of it in, and it wow. is like it's a big intensive class like it's six yeah. credits but man it is like boot camp um we're doing this shit mm-hmm. i want to do a werewolf class that sounds awesome yeah it's super fun super fun we just won't talk about Twilight Werewolves. We just won't do it. Exactly. exactly. We're not, we're not yeah. going there. <laughs> you know, I do have to say, for some of my undergrad students, Twilight was their gateway. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. so as much as I want to like bemoan sparkly vampires, it was totally like their what Lost Boys was to me. That whole like vampire yeah. romance, sexy teen love yeah. thing was there in Twilight. So yeah, they just didn't have as good of hair as Lost Boys yeah. by oh, any stretch. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I wonder if there's anybody out there for whom Count Chocula was their vampire introduction. You know, <laughs> I was a booberry myself. So yeah, everything has a gateway. I'm telling you, so I'm not surprised. Look at the three of us. Like, look what we're doing with our yeah. spare time. Right, we're all here talking horror. <laughs> but the no book, doubt. but the book is also a beautiful book. But it's also like a vicious yeah. book and a and a you know violent book and exciting book in that way. So I think. I think, you know, we're, we're probably talking about the kind of the goals and, and uh, perspective changes, but it also does exactly what you're just saying about Flanagan. It's also ticking uh, all the emotional boxes, but it's also ticking all those horror boxes, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's surprising. I, I also liked it because it was surprising. And I think sometimes the slasher film isn't surprising yeah. at a certain point, right, as a formula. And this one really had me from start to end. So if you haven't read it yet, trust us on this one. Uh, we all give it 
or three thumbs up or whatever with suit for that. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us tonight, Stephen. Please check out My Heart Is a Chainsaw sequel coming soon. Do you have anything else kind of um, coming out soon that we should pump? I just had a graphic novel, Memorial Ride, come out, and I believe I have a haunted, I have a haunted house novel coming out in the spring, possibly. Oh wait, what was the name of that graphic novel again? Memorial Ride. Memorial Ride. Okay. And graphic novel. I have a couple books out in spring. I don't know. <laughs> That's what my agent tells me. I don't know. <laughs> I better ask my kids. <laughs> Well, good luck, man. That's awesome. And it's been fun to finally. Oh, my gosh. Dr. Stephen Graham Jones, PhD. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) us tonight. You are welcome on anytime, sir. Have a fantastic night. And thank you all for listening to Colors of the Dark. Um, We, uh, of course, have our possession screening coming up live at USC in just a couple of weeks. So please check our socials for that. If you just can't get enough of Becca and Elric. Yeah, I just referred to myself in the third person, y'all. That was weird. Um, Us dropping deep cuts. Please check out our Patreon show, Deep Cuts. We're cheap and we give you lots of good titles. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.